invite you to take a Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at the uh, premier passage in the Bible on giving and generosity. If you want to uh, read the premier passage about love, you turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you want to see it about the institution of the Lord's Supper, you go to Matthew 26. But for giving, it's 2 Corinthians 9. And uh, at the end of our service, for those who are church members... Uh, we have a time we call Covenant Renewal when we ask you that are either as individuals or families to turn in a, a pledge card representing your financial commitment to this ministry for 2011. And we'll do that during our closing hymn today, and I'll say more about that later. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'll begin reading in, in uh, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So ends the reading of, of God's holy word. A number of years ago, this... Uh, church sent me to Eastern Europe with a number of other pastors to visit some of our missionaries there. And the leader of our group encouraged us to read certain books before we went, books that would give us better understandings of the countries that we visited. In preparation for visiting Poland, we were to read Schindler's List, which I did. At the end of the book, and as well in the movie, there is a very emotional scene in which the main character, Oscar Schindler, this businessman in Poland during World War II who had paid out a personal fortune to ransom, basically, to spare the lives of many Jews from the Nazis. At the, in the scene, he looks now, as the war is coming to a close, he looks at his car, he looks at his golden pen, and he regrets, he has tremendous remorse, that he did not give more of his money and possessions to save more lives. Now, Oscar Schindler had used his opportunity far better than most people in those days. But in the end, he longed for a chance to go back and to redo some things and to make some better choices. This morning, I want us to look at, as I said, the premier passage in the Bible on the subject of giving and generosity. But it's very important for you to understand the background. Uh, let me tell you what it was. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as you know, was an enemy of early Christians. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a religious zealot. He not only didn't believe 
what Jesus had taught. He thought Jesus' followers were dangerous. Lo and behold, he is converted. And some years later, God commissions him to be a missionary primarily to the Gentile world, to those that were non-Jewish. He was a missionary around the Mediterranean Sea and around those regions. And he would go and he would evangelize and he would plant churches. He would organize those new Christians into churches. Here's what happened to start the church in Corinth. I'm going to read to you from Acts, Acts chapter 18. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So here was this man. He would show up in a city, a large city such as Corinth, and he would begin to witness. He would go to the places like the synagogue where people could be recognized to stand up and teach. And he would teach and he would give the basic gospel message that all of us have been created by God. We were made in his image. But our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, all they were, though, they were created with a spiritual life, a spiritual sense that we don't have. That they had a perfect relationship with God, but because they disobeyed God, that spiritual sense died. They died spiritually. And God said he must punish them because of his sin. And the punishment is death. Now, he also foresaw that he would, and told that he would send a redeemer one day to be a substitute. And so Jesus, God the Son, came. He lived a perfect life. He always did those things that are pleasing to the Father. He fulfilled God's law in every respect. And yet, he was crucified. He was put upon a cross. And while he was on that cross, God put my sin on him, and he punished him in my place. And so the death... For my sin that I deserve, Jesus took. And now by having faith in that work, then we can be forgiven and given new life. Three days after he died, he came back from the dead. And he appeared for 40 days to hundreds of people. And the last thing he told his followers before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father was to go into all the world and to tell people what God had done so that we can be made right with him. That's a simple message. That's the simple message you and I need. This was the simple message that Paul preached when he planted churches like in Corinth. Once people were converted, he gathered them into local assemblies, churches. And some of the New Testament letters are written to give the pastors instructions as to how to set up these institutions that God has ordained. Now, on his third missionary journey, on his third trip around the Mediterranean... He took up, as he traveled from city to city, he took up a special relief offering. Some of the Christians, the converted Jews back in the area of Judea, were suffering. And so Paul said, I'll take up a relief offering to help alleviate their suffering, to help feed them and care for them, and at the same time, it will be an expression of unity from these Gentile believers toward their, their Jewish believing Christian, these Christians that had come from a Jewish background. Every church had given, by and large, to this offering, this relief offering. 
The church in Corinth, though, had said, we're going to send some money. We're going to send an offering to help with this. But an entire year had passed, and they had not fulfilled their promise. They had not done it. Now, that is the background for these verses. Paul is writing to them to say, let me just talk to you about generosity. And I know your concerns. You're probably concerned about whether God will take care of your needs. And it's with that in mind that he gives these instructions. So let's look at how we stand to benefit from our giving. He begins with a simple premise that follows all the way through, and that is the the principle of sowing and reaping. He says in verse 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Here's the simple picture. A farmer looks out at his fields, and he's maybe prepared, he, he's prepared the soil for, on a five-acre plot. And he says, well, should I just plant? Should I just sow on one acre? If I sow on one acre, I'll only reap on one acre. If I sow on two acres, I'll only reap from two acres. To reap from five acres, I must sow five acres. You don't sow five acres and reap from ten. You don't sow ten and reap from twenty. So that's just common, common analogy anyone could understand. The Apostle Paul uses that to say the amount of sowing determines the amount of the harvest. Now the farmer looks at sowing as an opportunity. The more I sow, the more I can reap. Now what's the prescription? How are we to do this? Verse 7 says we should give with a proper attitude. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. For the farmer, his motives in planting seed are irrelevant. He could be angry that day. He could be happy that day. He could be doing this to, out of frustration. It has no bearing. But for us, from a spiritual standpoint, our motives, your motives, and how you give are very, very important. And God doesn't want them to be uh, like a couple of these. He does not want you to give reluctantly. Not reluctant, in a sense, because I have to part with it. Uh, He also says not under compulsion. That means doing it because I'm expected to do it, or doing it because others will think less of me if I don't. Both of these attitudes, giving reluctantly or giving under compulsion, are not joyful giving. They don't please God. They don't honor God. So what should the motive be? It should be joyfully. Now here's what I think it boils down to. Our attitude in giving will be determined by a very simple view of God. And that is, do we view God as a giver or as a taker? If you view God as a taker, and every time you hear a sermon or read the Bible, there's another command. It's like, oh, one more, one more demand being made on me. Oh, give. Yes, God's like this huge tick up in heaven, and we're the host, and he's just going to suck the life out of it. And every time I turn around, he wants more and more and more. He's just this this black hole of need. Now, if that is your view of God, that that you have to look out for yourself, and all God wants from you is everything, he's going to take it all from you. If you dare let him, you'll never be a joyful giver. You may give, but it will be reluctantly like, oh, brother, if I don't do this, something bad's going to happen Or it will be because, well, this is just expected of me. I guess I ought to do what's required. It's my duty. No, we're to give cheerfully. So what I want to do is spend just a few minutes 
showing you some things from this passage that I think can help you and help me be cheerful givers. First, we're cheerful givers, or we can begin to give cheerfully when we realize it will help us to experience God's love. In verse 7, when it, when it says that God loves a cheerful giver, why is that? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Because you imitate God at that point. God is a giving God. We reflect His character when we are generous and when we give. When we are cheerful givers, you might say we are most like God Himself. Now we have to learn that. For those of us that didn't come from Christian homes, maybe we never saw a Christian marriage. Where do we learn about a Christian marriage? Hopefully you learn it in the church. We, we had the funeral for Orban Howell this past week. And I found it difficult in the service to speak about Orban without speaking of his wife, Virginia, who died several years ago. Because I always saw them together. They had what would appear to be, and I assume it was reality, they just loved each other late in their life. You know what? I didn't say this at the first service. You know what one of the women that did her hair said about Virginia and Orban? Here they were in their 80s. And they would go, she would, he would take her to get her hair done. And while she'd be sitting there, he'd be sitting off at the side and he'd go. And she'd look back at him and go. Now, where do you learn? How can I learn to love my wife? I need to see. I need to see Orban in Virginia. I need to watch Christian marriages around me. So we learn lots of things. That's part of the purpose of the community of the local church. How to pray. How, how to do lots of things. How to raise children, hopefully. How to... How to handle problem and pain. Um, but where do we learn to give? It's supposed to be in the church. But I think we have a mistaken notion. I think we've taken what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which is when you give alms, when you give offerings, don't be like people that do it to gain show. In fact, do it so one hand doesn't even know. It's kind of like be oblivious to it. Well, I think we've taken that so far that we don't even tell one another Testimonies like Ashley said. Or we don't say, hey, let me tell you what I did and how God supplied. Let me tell you what I gave and what God did to enable me to do that. That is perfectly legitimate. It, to instruct one another and encourage one another, not to gain uh, recognition for yourself, but to teach another person. I learned to give as a new Christian from an older Christian, a youth pastor who taught me and told me what, how he tried to give sacrificially in his life. So I think we'll be generous givers when we realize it helps us to experience God's love. Also, we'll grow in generosity and being cheerful givers when we recognize that generous giving opens the windows of God's blessing. Look at verse 8. He says here, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Notice the word all, over and over. Not some of the time. He doesn't say God is able to make some grace abound to you so that in some things, sometimes, but he says all. Paul was assuring these Corinthian believers who were very skeptical as to whether God could meet their needs if they were to fulfill this relief offering. He is saying God can be trusted. He's trustworthy. When Jesus complimented the widow who gave the two coins, you remember the story, there at the temple. In the temple treasury, she gave the two coins, and Jesus said, I tell you, she gave more than all these wealthy people because they gave out of their abundance, and she gave all that she had. 
we know that she gave out of faith that God would provide for her. She believed in the promises of the Old Testament that said he would care for the widow and the orphan. And so that was a step of faith. When we give generously and cheerfully, we are saying, Lord, this is a demonstration that I know you not only are going to meet that person's need, but you're also going to meet mine. Because all of our resources ultimately come from God. Third, I think you and I can grow in being cheerful givers by realizing that our generous giving brings spiritual blessing to the giver. It says in verse 10 that he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Here's the picture. Often we think of God being before us in our giving. That as I give, I'm to do this to his work. But the Bible says he's also behind us. He's behind us in our giving. He's before us in our giving. So when it says that he supplies seed for the sower in verse 10, I envision it like this. Here I am as a farmer, and I've got the bag of seed around my waist. And I go out into the field and I throw the seed. But guess what? God is right behind me, and as this seed is thrown out, he pours more seed into into the bag. And so he supplies seed for the sower. Not just before, but during and after. That God will do that. Your giving also, fourth thing to realize, is that your giving will be cheerful by realizing generous giving multiplies praise and thanks to God. Um, a few years ago I had this happen. We, uh, we had an old car to sell that had belonged to our uh, uh, son-in-law and he and Julie had married and they moved to Colorado and he couldn't take that car with him so I bought it for him in order to sell it. I gave him the money and I said I'll sell it later. So I think it was around $925. I, I put an ad in the free advertising nothing happened, been a few days things sitting in our driveway and I sat down on a Saturday morning and I was uh, working on my sermon I know y'all all think I prepare weeks in advance I asked Randy Pope one time, I said, Randy, when do you finish your sermons? He said, Monday. I said, Monday? How do you do that? He said, well, I prepare during the week. I preach on Sunday, and I finish it on Monday. <laughs> um, so I was sitting at my, my uh, desk, and I, I said, what, what will I do if I sell this car? And I said, Lord, uh, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. We don't do spontaneous, you know. So I, I said, Lord, it, if you... If, if I can get the money for this, I want to give it to one of these baseball team ministries in Cuba. I'd just been to Cuba on a mission trip, and there are these athletic ministries by the Cubans uh, themselves, and they go out, and they, it's kind of like Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They put on these games, they give their testimonies at, at halftime, and, and uh, in the numbers of people who are professing faith in Christ was just amazing through this particular ministry. That's another story. But it cost about $1,500 per season to sponsor a team. That would buy the equipment, that would provide the travel to their games, that would do a lot of things. So I said, I'll give this money, if we sell the car, to do one of those teams, to help support it. I said it was 1500 the car was going to sell for like 900 Two hours later, I'm sitting at my desk, the car is sold, and I've got $900 in cash. And I began to think what I could do with that $900. <laughs> and baseball in Cuba didn't come to mind. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now, wow, you know, I could do this, I could do this, we could do this. I said, oh, no. All right, I made a commitment, I'm going to stick to it. So the next day, I don't even remember what the sermon was about. If I don't remember, I know you don't remember. But I mentioned something about that, and 
uh, about the thing with the baseball, and here's the money. And my point was, if I had not predetermined what I was going to do with it before it came, I, I would never have done what I ended up doing with it. But it was the predetermination. It was saying, I am going to be in a position as God prospers me. This is what I'm want, committed to do. That day, as everybody was leaving church, one of you, and I vaguely remember who it was, walked up to me with a big smile, laughed, handed me the check for the balance, and said, let's do the whole team. You know, to send this with that money you've got, and let's do the whole team. So when you get an extra $10 or $100 or $500, I think you should assume, why has God given this to me? Do you seek his will, or do you immediately assume, well, it's, it's mine to spend on me and what I desire? Well, maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. He blesses us so that we can bless others. And part of that will be it will generate and multiply praise and thanks to God. That's in verses 11 and 12. Here's what I mean by that. Our goal as a church, when we give, as I'm going to tell you specifically in a minute, we give through missions, church planting, local benevolences, and so forth to multiply people who love God and praise Him. That's what Paul's talking about here. For example, um, two weeks ago I'm teaching the Inquirer's class, and one of the campus outreach staff introduced me to two guys in the class. There's loads of college students in there. And he made the comment to me later that both of these fellows had come to faith in Christ over the past year. Now, you know what I look at? I don't always think this way, and I didn't say this to him, but I thought that's because somebody gave some money. Somebody paid this guy's support. Campus Outreach staff raises support. That's now translated into at least these two conversions. Now these people are in worship with us and praising and thanks to God. That's what Paul means. It has multiplied. That money, those dollars now have been translated into changed lives for eternity. When some of us went to Haiti, uh, been down there twice the past couple of years, and we saw a, a uh, facility, a, a church building, an orphanage, a school, uh, a place for them to run a business to help support the pastor. It's about a $140,000 gift from our church that supplied that. And we gathered for worship with a few hundred people. One of the two services that day, I preached through the translator, and I was, it was like this passage was was opened up before me that the giving now is translated into multiplied praisers and those giving thanks to God. That's our that's the goal. That's the purpose of our giving. And when we can give that way, it makes it joyful, doesn't it? When we realize that that that's what's happening. Now, I've got just a few moments, and I want to do something very different. For those of you that are members here, you'll know this is very unusual. And I'm going to speak specifically to the members of First Presbyterian Church. If you're, if you're not a member, just eavesdrop for the next few minutes. Um, but I want to talk very specifically about our giving and about our ministry right here. In a church this size, which is large by national standards, uh, there are many ministries, many dynamics, and it's easy to think or to ask yourself, does my giving make a difference? Does my uh, share, my portion of my tithes and offerings make a difference? Uh, our ministry budget here is about $2 million. 
Now, that is not what we give to missions through faith promise. That is not what we take up with our deacons fund that supplies special needs within our congregation. That's what I call the annual ministry budget. We work on a calendar year. So for 2011, the projected will be roughly $2 million. Now, I want you to recognize some very unique characteristics about First Presbyterian Church. First, as a church, and this is very unique, we are kingdom-minded. Our focus is the kingdom of God, not just First Presbyterian Church and not just the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination. This has been true for many, many decades. I'm not sure how it got started, but that is, that is in the DNA of this church. We evaluate our giving and what we support as a church on how that ministry will advance the kingdom of God. If a church is only looking at a ministry as to, well, where's the direct payoff going to be for our church? We want to reach people who will get in our church and then give to the church. Well, you won't minister to college students. You won't minister to youth. You will not minister to graduate students. Uh, you, you won't do a lot of missions and, and all that. And therefore, a lot of churches don't. But we are kingdom-minded. And in fact, there was a fellow, there's a pastor in the service this morning that made the comment after the service. He said, boy, I'm a testimony to that. This church helped send me to seminary. He said, they've never benefited in any way. He's never been a pastor back here. He's been in PCA churches. But that's what we do. We try to build the kingdom. That's our priority. What's going to be most effective in building the kingdom? And so we're involved in student ministry, associated ministries, church planting, missions. Second, as a church, you are generous. We give, this past year, about 17% of that church budget, that $2 million, is given away to benevolences. Salvation Army, uh, Make and Rescue Mission, Strong Tower Fellowship, RUF, Campus Outreach, Young Life, Make and Rescue Mission, Covenant Care Services, First Presbyterian Day School, and a host of others with our Presbyterian, with our General Assembly. Now, and I, I have to be careful how I say this, but I'm trying to say it as a compliment. A number of years ago, the Macon Telegraph did extensive studies on the downtown and area churches, and not just downtown, the whole area. In the newspaper article were budgets, numbers, giving to missions, and so forth. I'll tell you this, there was no other church in middle Georgia that even comes close. That doesn't mean we do all that we ought to do. I'm just telling you, this is rare to have that kind of proportion and that kind of money coming out of our church to support other things. We are a go-to church in the denomination for anybody across the country needing to raise money. Now, I take that as a compliment. I mean it as a compliment. As a church, third, we handle money carefully. God has blessed his congregation with members and leaders who have a lot of financial sense. They really do. They are wise in planning, in personnel issues, in budgeting, in proper accounting, in auditing of all monies received and spent. I've had people walk up to me and say, Oh, Chip, I forgot to drop my tithe in the offering plate. Let me give it to you and turn it in. Sorry, I can't handle money. I mean, your money. I sometimes can't handle my money either, but, I, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not supposed to take it. And one result of this is we have, you know how much debt we have as a church? I'm often asked this in the inquirer's class. Zero. Not one penny this year. No interest payments, nothing. Now, we've, we've built buildings the past 20 years. We've refurbished, we've added new, we've torn down, built up. That came to millions of dollars. But by God's generous provision, we were able to do that with one, two, and three-year campaigns. And so we have no debt. Everything's paid off right now. 
and hopefully will continue to be so in, in the future. Now, when I say that to the inquirer's class, I often get looks of amazement because they've been in churches and ministries that were hamstrung with debt. That's God's blessing. Fourth, so we're kingdom-minded, we're generous, we handle money carefully, and we're also steady and consistent in our giving. You can be counted on. I've got a buddy in Nashville who's a pastor. You know how he describes the churchgoers in Nashville? He said they're always looking for the latest and the greatest. A new church will start, and there'll be something flashy, and everybody will leave one church and go to another. And so it wreaks havoc in the churches. You are steady and consistent. I was recently asked by a church member, is it true our giving is down and that is affecting the replacing of some of the staff? I said, our giving is not down. I said, in fact, our giving is steady and consistent. That's the good news. It's also the bad news of what I'm going to tell you. What has happened for the past three to four years is every year our budget, our giving, our giving is right about $2 million. But our overall ministries have grown and expanded. And starting about five years ago, each year we would come back and say, what can we cut? What can we uh, bring together? What can we reduce? What can we postpone? And we've done that year after year after year. And so this year, I've had seven elders meeting with me since January to look at the overall ministry of the church, the giving, the priorities, and so forth. And we have what I think is an excellent ministry plan for 2011. Your 25 elders spent two and a half hours this past Monday night, and a lot of it was spent discussing this. We have scrutinized the needs of the church. We've looked at the doors the Lord has opened for us. We want to walk by faith. We want to trust the Lord, but we don't want to be irresponsible and foolish. And so to fund the ministry plan that we think we need for 2011, it needs a budget of about $2.2 million. That will enable us to continue to support the many benevolence causes which are dependent on us. It will accommodate the ministry growth which has taken place in places like children and youth and young adults and others. It will also allow us to provide a pastor for Strong Tower Fellowship. Vimeble gave them a building. Their offerings and so forth carry on operations, but that group could never afford a pastor, not a PCA pastor, not at the level that they have now with Tom, with educational and theological level like Tom and Sarah Anderson. We want to provide that pastor. We just feel that is, we're of one mind on that. Now, so humanly speaking, what will it take for us to pursue this ministry plan? Here's what it will take. It would take my normal amount that I write on that pledge card, it would take increasing that by 9%. What I mean is if you plan to give $100, I wish you'd consider giving $109. If you're going to give $1,000, I wish you'd consider giving $1,090. If you're going to give... $100,000, I wish you'd consider giving a hundred, and is that right? And $9,000. I had a man come up to me between services and said, Chip, if you don't believe in God's providence, as I was leaving my house this morning, I looked at that card and I thought, I need to increase that by 10%. And he said, I walked in and then you said that about increasing by nine. I said, did you reduce it then by 1% before you turned it in? He didn't give me an answer. So will you consider turning in a pledge card? I know many of you are regular givers, but you don't turn in pledge cards for one reason or another. I understand, look, this is not a contract. It's not a promissory note. It's not a bill. 
It's a statement of intent that allows us to plan. That's all it is. It's a statement of your desire or intent, and we use it for planning purposes. And then I'd ask if you, those of you that give regularly to this church, that you might consider increasing that by 9%, or at least 9%, like I just mentioned. Now, in closing, and while we're going to do what we do, in a sense, this is like covenant renewal. In the Old Testament, there were certain times of the year that they renewed their covenants to the Lord. Our main covenant renewals are baptism and the Lord's Supper. This does not replace that. But as we stand to sing in just a moment our closing hymn, I hope you received your commitment card this week, and members uh, received it in the mail. hope you're ready to turn it in. But as we sing, if you would just walk up to one of these boxes, there's one there, there's one there, there's one in front of me. If you just drop that in there as part of your renewal, covenant renewal to the commitment of this ministry. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, giving is not an easy area, and um, we have to look to you. We pray that you would teach us to live by faith, mold us into not only givers but cheerful givers who delight in seeing you work, that we see you as a giver, as a provider, and not a taker. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me invite you to turn.